iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hello and welcome uh, to the best of me, Jane Garvey. I know. And you? Feed lover. Over the next couple of days, you'll hear our big interviews with all sorts of people, a real range of guests, actually. Likes of uh, Jamie Oliver, the director of Bridesmaids, Paul Feig. Uh, that's what I call, can I just say, variety. I it mean, is, it is isn't variety, it? isn't it? Where it are you going to get that lineup? It's bing, bang, bong, all over the place. Uh, first, we start with a conversation, though, with the legend, the one and only Michael Palin, who we just loved meeting. He joined us to tell us about his new book and his travels all around the world. Uh, how do you feel, Michael, about travelling the world now? Is it a circle that you can square the climate change problems caused by mass tourism, but yet the need to still be able to see other parts of the world to keep our horizons broad? Well, I, I'm afraid I would say, well, it is a circle I can square because that's what I can do and have been able to to perhaps inform people about the world and other countries and what they think and their expectations by being actually able to go to those countries. I mean, if I could go by ship, but even then, you know, ships are fairly poisonous to the atmosphere as well. I think there's no question that when you travel, you're going to be using up you know, the carbon. But I think in my, in my particular case, um, I feel it's really important to go to the country, the country itself if you really want to find out what's going on. It's always very different to what you hear from the media mm. back home. And is, is the style of travel show, the traditional style of travel show, which is done by venerable white chaps, mm. is that still OK? Venerable white chaps. <laughs> she said, I, gazing I, with yes, reverence gazing at, me, yes. at a venerable white I'll chap. I'll take the venerable bit, that's no, fine. Well, you deserve it. Um, well, I think, I think anybody who's got anything to say about the world should be considered to say their piece and if they can deliver good ideas good opinions good insights about the world whoever they are man woman child whatever race color they should be able to do it and should be encouraged to do it mm. i think it is important to have a range of opinions and and go and deliberately go out for that i think the most important thing is to get people who are good who know what they're talking about and they don't i'm afraid i just don't think getting in people for the sake of what their you know their their whatever they might their view might be or their, their, their current popularity might be. yes yeah well you know yeah. you've got to know your stuff i think but I watched some of your revisits of your travels around the world in 80 days that you did during the lockdown. It was yeah. it was us watching you watching yes. you 
very meta. <laughs> yeah, very meta, yes. Exactly. But I sensed that there was a <clears throat> tiny bit of reticence from you sometimes mm. about the places you've been to and the things that you'd seen and said. Well, my reticence is always because I know that I'm not an expert and I don't like to be seen as an expert. You're a sometimes... 79-year-old white man. You can run for president. You, yeah, yeah, <laughs> your, yeah, your category... I can't run. ...is expert. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can walk for president. We'll stagger for president. No, I can run, actually. I'm reasonably quite fit. I've avoided politics um, and, and not regretted that. Mm. Um, sorry, what was the question? Whether you remember. were reticent when you watched your earlier yeah. work back... About anything, about a change in times or a change in tone? Yeah, I think, it, again, I just feel I've got to be very, very careful of making judgments, instant judgments, about, especially about countries and the, world, the way the world is. Things will change, you know, drastically or even change just, um, um, you know, in, in, a, in a few months, the emphasis will change. I mean, you'll get something like the war in Ukraine, which is a massive change. Um, but at the same time, you've got climate change, which is, you know, having different manifestations as we go by each year. But I think one's got to be very careful of saying, well, if we do this, that will happen. If we do this, it'll make it all better. And I, I feel I'm still discovering, and that's what travelling is about for me. It's about satisfying, satisfying a curiosity, not being an expert who knows his stuff and, and trying to tell the rest of the world what to do. Now, I'm glad, I'm glad you're fit now, and you are. You yes, clearly are yeah. fitting well at the moment, which is great. <laughs> I but, got here. Yes, indeed. Mm. But when you put it to the family that the trip to Iraq was looming, mm. how, how did that go down? Not well. No. Not well. Can't say I'm surprised. Well, so, <laughs> I mean, my wife's terrific, really. She's always been very keen on me going away for long periods of time <laughs> to remote parts of the world. It's a sign of her love for me, I suppose. Um, <laughs> But North Korea was the first one. That took a bit of a battery. Well, yeah. And Iraq too. North Korea, I think, was slightly worse because so little was known about North Korea. And even though we went at a time when there was a rapprochement, you, you know, people went there and some people didn't come out again. So there was the feeling that you would, no one would know anything about what happened when you went into Korea. Whereas in Iraq, people know where you are all the time. It's a bit like going into a Western country in a way. Yes, I mean, of, of all the places you've been in the world, was North Korea, by some margin, the worst? Well, worst in what way? Well, the, if you could imagine, <laughs> yes. or could you possibly imagine carving out in any way a half-decent life there? Possibly. Really? How? Just possibly. Well, you would have to stop reading the books you like reading, you would have to stop listening to the music you like necessarily, you would stop listening to, you know radio and TV and, and, and have a very, very limited mix of things you could see. If one wanted that life, I wouldn't at all. Quite the opposite. I'm, I'm a sort of sucker for information from all quarters. But I can see that some people may see it as a kind of the ultimate retreat, where you'd have to think very little. Everything's done for you. It's reasonably comfortable. There's no litter in North Korea at all. You know, if you just wanted to be, um, be on your own and be out of it and, and turn your back on the, the, the noisy world outside... Yes, I could mm. see you could like and it. And it takes away the choice of even a haircut, doesn't it, for men? I mean, that is quite something. Uh, do most Iraqis mm. want more people to come and visit Iraq? Yeah, I think they... I'm, I'm sure they do, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, and be good for business. It's something that, you know, they, they, they feel, I think, that they've been um, sort of rejected by the world for a long time and people turn their back on, on, on Iraq. So obviously, yes... But there is, in almost every country I went to, even, dare I say, North Korea in some ways, there is a, an urge to welcome people. If you approach with the right 
attitude, you haven't got a gun and you haven't got an opinion that you want to allow and you haven't got a Bible, then you'd probably be welcomed. Um, and, and certainly people in, in Iraq welcomed us. Um, they didn't, oddly enough, didn't blame us for all the terrible things that have happened, um, which they could I, well have done. Uh, they but. really didn't. It never came up? or Well, no. I mean, this could be... We weren't there for a long time. They may be trying to be nice to us. But, I mean, the general, the general feeling was that they knew that the problem was within Iraq itself. It's a country of so many different tribes, groups, religions. They know that. They know it's not a perfect country and it's never really worked. So I suppose you could blame the British for lumping it all together in the first place. But I think they see the problems there as their own problems, which they have to sort out. Thank you very much. Presumably with their oil, I mean, obviously I know oil is in itself difficult, but they could be a hugely successful, prosperous place. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot, of Iraqis, yeah. a lot of Iraqis will tell you that. I mean, we went to a school with super children. I mean, really... Very, very clever, bright, lots of energy. And yet the buildings they were in were sort of falling apart, you know. And these are, a lot of them were take, taking sort of science as education and yet the actual facilities, the laboratories, just weren't there at all. I mean... Mm. They, they were such bright buttons, weren't oh, they? Uh, really ter- amazing. They were terrific, yep. yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, is, when you think back to that journey, what mm. is the most kind of mesmerising memory that comes to you of all of the places that you visited? Well, I think it's probably going up that tower, the minaret oh, in yes. Samara. It was a beautiful building. And I had to do something which I wasn't prepared for at all, which is to walk up the building, which has no um, fencing on the on the side, just on the inside. So you're looking out. Over, I have I have suffered from vertigo. I managed to go up this 200-foot building, stand on the top with no fence around at all, and suddenly was able to stand there without quaking. I don't know why that happened. I yeah. think it possibly because it's an 800-year-old building and people have been going up and down there every day for years. It was terrifying years. just watching. It, it, it really terrifying. was. And also because there didn't <laughs> seem to be a language between everybody as to who moved to the other side no, no, to no, let absolutely. them pass. It wasn't common. Yeah, yeah, no, yes, it wasn't. Yes. No. That was Michael Palin, and if you haven't seen it, and I think we were both so enthusiastic at the time, I hope a lot of you did go and have a look. That series um, about Iraq is available still on My5. It's his Channel 5 travel series, and is one about North Korea. Also absolutely fascinating. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Welcome to the best of Jane and Fee, where we're mulling over some of our favourite conversations from the last couple of months. 
We're delighted to say that our guest this afternoon is Britain's second astronaut and first ever resident of the International Space Station, Major Tim Peake. Now, that is right, isn't it? I've got all those those facts completely right. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Helen Sharman was our first British astronaut in 1991 and Helen flew to the Mir space station uh, and she's a good friend of mine and she gave me lots of great advice before my mission in 2015. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because sometimes uh, she gets a bit forgotten, but you've always, I think, been really, really decent about acknowledging that you are not the first Briton in space. No, absolutely. And, and in fact, we've had several other astronauts who were British born with dual nationality that flew as NASA astronauts, um, the likes of Mike Fole and Pierce Sellers, um, for example. Uh, and, and so I think it's great that we have this heritage of space exploration in the UK um, and we're very good at it and we shouldn't forget that. How old were you when you went up to the space station, Tim? Uh, I was 43 years old when I arrived, 44 when I came down. Okay, so do you now see your life as the years pre-space station and post-space station in terms of the way you think about your life? Um, I do, but uh, I wouldn't say it's that in isolation. I think all of us, as we journey through life, we we pick up experiences from so many different things that we do, um, whether they're actually part of our job, whether they're physical experience, whether they're emotional experiences. And certainly traveling into space was a major uh, part of my life and has had a, a big impact. But um, so was being a test pilot. So was becoming a father. Um, and so I, I kind of th- feel that, you know, life goes through in these incremental phases. But yes, space is definitely a huge part of it. I suppose what I'm really getting at is the kind of stuff that I think William Shatner has talked about, that impression that you get from space of our home planet and how it changes you. What about that? Yes, it does. It, it does change you forever, really. And it gives you a completely different perspective of the planet. And it's it's something that I draw strength from, actually. I, I can uh, always see myself up on the space station looking down at Earth and, and, and realising, you know, how incredibly beautiful our planet is, but also how fragile it looks against this vast black backdrop of, of space. And, and we are just travelling through a very ordinary solar system or orbiting a very ordinary star in this ordinary galaxy of the Milky Way. And it does allow you to kind of step back and and see things in a slightly different perspective. So you do this enormous amount of training on planet Earth and then you go up to the International Space Station. Have you come across people who cannot make the same kind of connection with where they are, though? So they do slightly lose it once they get to space, even though they have trained to imagine themselves to be in that situation. Um, I've not heard that from any professional astronauts. Our training is so incredibly thorough um, and it prepares you for every eventuality. I mean, it is difficult to fully prepare you for weightlessness and the view of Earth and how your perception will change. But uh, generally speaking, we, we've trained so long and so hard that um, it's not such a shock to the system that when you go into space that, that you do have a major change. I love the way that you said professional astronauts. Are there amateur astronauts? Where are they? <laughs> well, it's interesting that that um, previously you might have thought that every astronaut was a professional astronaut. And, but there's a big difference between an international space station crew member who is you know, qualified to fly spacecraft, dock spacecraft, do spacewalks, medical training, etc. So perhaps somebody who might fly 
into space with Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic, who has done a, a very small amount of training just so that they can look after themselves for a very short duration flight. What um, personality traits should immediately disqualify you from becoming <laughs> a, a, an astronaut or a resident of the space station? <laughs> well, you're not looking for extremes of personality. So neither extremely introvert nor extrovert um, uh, in terms of how you uh, relate to other people as well. You want people to be confident, not fearful, but you don't want them to be overconfident. So if you're looking at the psychological profile of an astronaut, it will be uh, it will be kind of down the middle in most of the categories. Uh, I know you. I think I know already what the answer to this is. But have you ever been on the space station or during the time that you were there, did you ever come across someone who you thought should not have been there because of their personality? No, absolutely not. I, I knew I think, you were going to say um, that too. We, we work so closely with our teammates. We do all sorts of training, for example, seven days living in a cave and 12 days living underwater. Uh, these environments are designed to put us under stress, into difficult circumstances, to test us to our limits. So we get to know ourselves very well. We get to know our crewmates very well. And we get to practice all of those really important interpersonal relationships. So you don't want any conflict, any a clash of personalities in space. And by the time we get to the space station, we pretty much have dealt with all of that during our training. Can we just talk about the male ego in space, um, if you don't mind, Tim? I mean, you seem a man who ironically is very down to earth, but um, I'm thinking of the likes of Bezos and uh, Mr. Musk and our own Richard Branson. Uh, what is it about these very, very rich guys and their interest in space? Are you entirely comfortable with all that? Well, I think I, I would probably break those down into uh, individual companies and, and perhaps um, with Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, uh, they're looking at doing something separate to Elon Musk in, in terms of they're looking at um, trips to space in low Earth orbit, suborbital. So they're not getting into orbit. They're, they're simply going up 100 kilometers, breaking the space boundary and back down again. Um, it's a very commercial endeavor and it's there for the enjoyment of people who can afford it at the moment. What SpaceX are doing are very much part of the space exploration program going back to the moon and as a stepping stone to Mars. They're on the critical path. We can't do these Artemis missions, which will see humans walk on the moon again in 2025. We can't do that without SpaceX. They're building the lander system that's going to take us down to the surface of the moon. And they're providing a lot of logistic support. Um, so I think it's important to make that differentiation between those three different companies. Um, and, and I think it's fascinating that so many people have an interest in space. And of course, one of the hurdles to that is, is finances. And when you have wealthy people, they've decided to put their finances into space exploration. But a lot of that is not being spent in space, of course. It's jobs for the economy. It's technology that will be used down here on Earth to improve people's lives down on Earth. Some of the things we do on the space station, for example, it's all about um, solar panel technology. It's about carbon dioxide removal techniques, water purification systems, pharmaceutical research. Everything about the space station is about improving life for people down on Earth. Who's policing all of the space traffic? The policing of the space traffic is a really interesting question because it's one that needs to improve. As we use space more and more, we need to protect it as an environment. We need to think about the debris and we need to think about the policing. Uh, the United Nations 1967 Outer Space Treaty is the specific answer to your question. Um, and we are constantly revising that and updating that. 
but it is an old treaty and the the pace of space exploration at the moment is very rapid and the rules and the regulations are not keeping up so we need to make sure that we continue to collaborate work together and explore space responsibly tim can you just take us um inside your head as you're waiting to launch do, and do you consider yourself a brave person I mean, I would consider you brave, but I want to hear it from you. Um, I think I, I've always considered myself to have uh, an interesting appetite to risk, I guess. I don't ever no, consider that's, that's myself. Brave, to... Tim. It's not an appetite for risk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't consider myself to be an adrenaline junkie. But then when people point out to me that I enjoy, you know, parachuting, motorbike riding, flying helicopters and flying to space, then you kind of have to browse. <laughs> You have to perhaps rethink your position on that. Um, but I, I've always kind of thought that I, when I do things, it's it's always with a balanced approach to risk. As a test pilot, you would never go off and just jump in an aircraft and take it to its limits without fully considering every eventuality, what could possibly go wrong and have you got a plan for it. And that's how we approach spaceflight. So when we sit on top of that rocket, yes, we're aware that we're putting ourselves at risk. Um, but we have trained so hard for every eventuality. There's just a small amount of risk left, which is the uncontrollable stuff. And, you know, if it's something you can't control, put it to one side. Yeah, don't but worry about I, it. I don't want to push you, but what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about your family? Are you, uh, what are, what's no. in your head? I mean, you've said goodbye to your family. It's, it's very much a mental mindset. On launch day, there's a whole range of emotions. And, and yes, when you're there, you're behind the glass, you're saying your final farewells. It's very emotional. And um, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do to, to wave goodbye to my family. Um, but when you actually sit on top of the rocket, you make a mental uh, mindset change. You're operationally focused. You need that clarity of thought. You need um, to be able to have fast decision making processes and you need to be absolutely focused on, on the job in hand. So it's one of excitement and, and, and adrenaline. But I'm not thinking of my family. I'm, I'm not thinking about what could catastrophically go wrong. No, it's very much focused on the mission ahead. Your wife must be very lovely because, I mean, it's bad enough, isn't it, waving goodbye to your husband off on a golfing weekend, but <laughs> off to the International <laughs> Space Station. Did he mow the lawn? Did he do the laundry? <laughs> off you go. Bye. <laughs> Did you have a careers teacher at school, Tim? And if so, my, uh, have you seen them since? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, my, my poor wife's been long suffering, uh, both when I was a test pilot and, and as national. I think she was just delighted that for six months she would know exactly where I was. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Uh, so there was probably less risk involved in flying to space as well than, than flying helicopters. Um, so, you know, but I, I've had so much support from my family. I, I couldn't have done any of it without that. And in, in terms of ambition, I mean, tell me that when your head hits the pillow last thing at night, you're not agonising over anything because um, in a way you, well, you've, you've achieved a multitude of ambitions already, surely. I haven't been very, very fortunate. I've had a very exciting career, very re rewarding career. Um, I think it's important to give back as well, which is why I'm so passionate about, you know, uh, reaching out in the education department to schools, colleges, universities, because I think we have to help to inspire our future generations. Jane was saying that one of her favourite uh, outings for her children was the Science Museum where kids and mine were the same, they go straight for anything to do with space. You know, there's a, just an element of wonder, especially about seeing objects that have been in space. But at the same time, I know that my kids, they, they can experience a virtual reality that can tell them that they can be in space themselves. The, 
you know, the, the boundaries have changed a little bit, haven't they? Well, I think what virtual reality does is it allows you to immerse yourself in an environment. And I think that's brilliant. It could, we actually use virtual reality as a training method here on Earth. We, we learn to fly a jetpack in virtual reality. We have to pass a jetpack exam before we can go and do a spacewalk. We practice our spacewalks in a VR environment, even on board the space station. So that's one of the most amazing things is, is being in virtual reality in space. Um, so it's, it's a great tool that enables us to experience more. And I think that what's fascinating is, um, you know, young children today have got access to some of these devices and they can experience these things and, and get closer to what it's actually like to be out in space. Now, you've been listening to Off Air. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. You can listen to us on the free Times Radio app or download every episode from wherever else you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you like what you've heard, then you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times Radio. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.